Are you listening? Good morning, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is the Monday Morning Analyst for March 2nd, 2015. Now, there was a lot going on in the weekend, but this podcast is only a, basically a 30-minute recap of all the technical action that happened over the weekend. There is so much to get to. I have to exclude a lot. I will link up the things that I excluded in the post that I put on MMA Fighting, or I'll put this window. But you have to understand, for this particular podcast, uh, i got to just cut down things. So I'm going to get to the three biggest things that matter for our audiences. Bellator 134, which was on Friday. Invicta 11, which was also on Friday, but later that day. And then UFC 184 on Saturday. Yes, I know that there was some important boxing events. Um, I know that there was a lot of different things going on, including Legacy. Also had a show on Friday night. We just don't have time to get to it. So, as you can see, 30 minutes on the clock. We'll uh, use this to get going. We'll start with the overview, then technical action, and then, of course, what's ahead uh, coming up. Ready? Here we go. All right, clock has started. The big overview, to me, last week we had focused on head movement. There's a little bit less of an issue this time. I think, for me, the big takeaway that I have was... Um, I don't know if there was necessarily the same kind of overarching lesson technically, except I thought that there was, and we'll get to this, of course, in the course of breaking down some of these fights, the single leg was really important during these uh, events. Uh, this would include the Mizuki Inoue versus Alexa Grasso fight. That would include, to a lesser extent, um, Emmanuel Newton versus Liam McGeary. That would include um, some of the fights on UFC 184 as well. And so I really thought that the single leg, I don't know if made a comeback is quite right, but if you notice, we've been talking about a lot, guys looking for doubles off the fence, trying to get the hand clasp. Sometimes they'll switch off from a single to a double, double to a single, single to a high crotch, single to a fireman's carry in the case of Jamie Varner and, and I think it was Sharon Leggett. Um, but in any case, they do that off the fence too, but it's a lot less common. Some of the single legs that we saw this weekend were against the fence. A lot of them were just in that inner circle, right? So if someone shoots, they might sprawl. Maybe on the in a in a scramble, they grab the single and then they just dump them over to the side. You've only really seen effective single leg defense off of the fence in a case like Robbie Lawler versus Johnny Hendricks, where he refused to let his hips get turned and covered, right? So when that when they dump and then the other hand comes over to close the hips. And they have control over it. You saw that they were really never able to get that. They were just trying to constantly dump to one side. Other hand posting to keep them off uh, of getting their hips turned and covered. So that to me was kind of interesting this time. Was that I really and truly believe everyone has focused so much on takedown defense against the cage. And not without good reason. It was an important component of bringing your skills up to par at the professional level the last few years. But if you really want to take someone down, you got to get back to some old school basics. You need to hit some blast doubles in the center of the cage. You need to have some setups into things. Not, I mean, doubles are still great, but the single leg, single leg sweeps. Uh, uh, you saw James Krause, we'll go to that more, uh, shooting the double and then trying to bring the leg around for the trip at the same time, getting kind of close with it. Just finding unorthodox ways to take someone down off of the fence. You might find, I really and truly believe this as we go forward, it's going to be a more effective way. And there was some proof of that this weekend. Okay, so that was the big takeaway, the big overview. Let's now move on to the fights themselves. Now, 
we'll just go in chronological order. That way, um, it makes it simple for everybody. So, okay, first event. Uh, chronologically speaking, anyway, again, there were other MMA events that night, but let's just focus on the one that matters, um, uh, that, we, that we have time to get to, anyway. Bellator 134 took place at the Mohegan Sun Arena. It aired on Spike TV. We do not have any figures for uh, attendance or uh, gate. Typically, Bellator does the, their well. To the extent that there are any, uh, any of this information is released, we'll put it on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas, or we'll uh, obviously, I'll publish it on MMAfighting.com, but for now, for this podcast, we don't have anything. Um, Tamden McCrory was the only fighter from the prelim card I wanted to discuss very quickly. There were some other good fighters, however. Jason Butcher. Jason Butcher had him against the cage. I think McCrory was either using, a, I think, a closed guard uh, underneath. And what happened was Butcher, was, McCrory was trying to hit him with his left, so... Butcher came over with a right and then was try- and then reached across McCrory's body to block uh, McCrory's punching hand. Whenever someone is un- like this underneath you, you never want to cross hands. This hand should never go past their center line because once you do that, you've just you're giving away everything. There's a dividing line there, and the hand should never go over. I mean, for a collar choke, you can get away with it for with if you have a gi on. But almost every circumstance, you'd ever reach across. So you see him reach across to block McCrory's left. As he does, McCrory just whips the hips around. He gets the arm bar. Easy, easy as, uh, as whatever. Whatever the, the stupid-ass analogy is. Um, there you go. So that was all it was. He just reached across the wrong side, and he got snatched up. Uh, Brennan Ward defeated, uh, by the way, the time on the uh, Tandem McCrory-Jason Butcher fight was at 106 of the first round. All right, so... Let's talk about the things we have time for. Uh, Brendan Ward defeated Curtis Melender via rear naked choke at 139 of the first round. Not a lot to speak of in this one. I actually thought Melender had a decent chance at an upset. Um, he can wrestle, and uh, he can strike at least decently well from the outside. But he just didn't deal well with the pressure here. He would um, lean back, move in straight back lines under the pressure, and wasn't just being offensive enough. Had some decent defense uh, in close quarters. Anyway, just, but the sort of standing there like a deer in headlights, gets tagged, I believe, with a right. Uh, gets knocked on his ass, tries to scramble, and in the process gives up his back, and then that was all she wrote for that one. Brendan Ward dropping down from 185 to 170. If you can hear my cat and dog. Uh, looks pretty good, I thought. He, he was a little undersized, even though he was very physical at middleweight. Now I feel like welterweight is probably going to be a much better weight class for him, assuming he can maintain it, which seems like he can. Uh, Linton Vassal defeated Sokaju uh, at 318 of the second round. Not to speak a whole lot about this bout. Um, utterly unmemorable. I thought Vassal would get him out of there a little bit sooner, but be that as it may. Um, Vassal also has some decent single leg takedowns as well, but... Um, this, this battle was sort of unremarkable in that in that context. Paul Daly defeated Andre Santos via decision. Uh, 29-27, 29-28, 29-28. Not, not, a, not a good showing by Paul Daly at all. He had mentioned that he had owned up to it after the fact. Um, it was interesting to note that he said the range was off. And you could see him being either right in front of, of the punches uh, with the face. It would, they, would, they would fall just short or they would go right behind the guy all, over and over again. He just couldn't quite see. He was really, really inaccurate. So maybe there was something to be said for that. Um, I don't think that uh, he had expected quite the prolonged battle. His cardio wasn't quite there, so that was a bit problematic as well. Um, 
Uh, I'm trying to think about anything of significance that happened in the bout. His takedown defense was characteristically pretty good. Um, one of the things that you saw in the daily Woodley fight was he was getting stuck and pressed against the fence. He did a much better job this time of separating, but was getting caught in a couple transitions, sort of just not scrambling hard enough, which I, I would, I would, I would argue is a function of just simply physical fitness, not any technical deficiencies in this regard. There just simply was a, a, an intensity lacking. And when you lack a certain intensity, you make decisions about what to do that you wouldn't ordinarily make if you have better physical fitness. Um, you know, Douglas Lima would have had his way with him, so it's maybe good that he got this tune-up fight, to be perfectly honest, because that was that the, the daily that was in the cage that night, there was no way it was going to be Douglas Lima. It was just not going to happen. Um, but he wound up getting the decision uh, in the end. Anyway, uh, Muhammad Lawal defeated Czech. And I'm going to race through these because we have so much to get to. Muhammad Lawal defeated Czech Congo via split decision 29, th excuse me, 30-27, 28-29, and then 29-28. Lawal doing what he did basically against Rampage. Um, he hit a blast double once. I think he hit some single leg takedowns as well. Um, did a good job of never staying in front of Congo too long except to bait him, but then really got out or got in. Uh, once he was on top, had great control. Good job of keeping um, Congo's legs elevated so that he couldn't plant them or get turned to a hip so he could uh, get away. Um, not, I don't think that the problem I, uh, with, you know, uh, problem, however you want to describe it, the, one of the issues with Mo, I feel like if he could really add uh, the ability to score more meaningful ground and pound, it's not that he doesn't pass as much as he needs to or that he couldn't pass if needed to. It's that he's really fo focused on control positions, and I feel like um, if, there was, if there was a way, uh, obviously easier said than done, that he could score more damage in these control positions, I really feel like he, he wouldn't stop having these bouts be so close. I mean, he basically wrestled the exact same way he did against Rampage. I think Rampage, he pressed into the fence a little bit more. Not that he didn't press Congo into the fence, but I mean, for more prolonged periods of inactivity, um, where you know he's constantly getting fighting off underhooks and things like that. Um, this time on Congo, he was able to get lower more often and then keep him there once he was there a little more easily. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it, it, there's just not quite enough damage being executed once you get there. Although, you know, he's wrestling a bigger guy in Czech Congo. It's a little bit more difficult to do. All right, the fight that I really want to talk about, Liam McGeary defeated Emmanuel Newton via unanimous decision, 48-46, 48-47, 48-47. By the way, quick note about Bellator. I know we've raced through these, and I apologize, but we just got to get to it. Um... Bellator has redone, it feels like, their page on Spike.com. So if you missed any of these fights, they appear to be up on Spike.com right now. So I actually rewatched some of the McGeary-Newton fight. Again, single leg comes into play. They were getting turned, again, not against the fence, away from the fence, getting turned. And McGeary uh, didn't have much of an, uh, an answer for it. I feel like a lot of these taller guys, like these Condit types, they don't really work on their sprawl, or at least their sprawl is not very good. And so they really develop a guard game as a countermeasure. I would say it's probably better in modern MMA to have takedown defense as a priority. But if you don't, it certainly is a nice backup having a guard game. So I was thinking about this. And if you haven't seen the fight, you're going to tell me I'm crazy. But once you've seen it, you might be a little more sympathetic to me. Liam McGeary, I don't want to go out and say he has the best guard in light in the light heavyweight division. But he's probably pretty close if he doesn't have it. Now, Vinny Magalhaes is a 205, and he's a much more credentialed black belt in any way than McGeary is. Okay, fine. And a lot of what McGeary does are tricks that his body type enables once he's been passed. Understand, uh, uh, Rafael Lovato has talked about this pretty extensively. If you don't get your guard passed, 
you remove 90% of the submission opportunities from your opponent. The passing is really very required to isolate the body in a way, even for a knee bar or an ankle lock or um, another sub ankle locks you can just drop back for. Okay, I understand, but um, you know if you're you know Husamar Palhares, you have a lot of opportunity without passing. But most guys are not Husamar Palhares. They need to pass and need to set up different opportunities for themselves. And so, um, so in that sense, Vinny probably has a better guard because it's you're just probably not going to pass it. He doesn't use it maybe as offensively on guys as he could. Uh, or maybe we don't get a better sense of it because he's not fighting in belt, or he was fighting probably, you know, a, a higher caliber of guys in, in UFC. But just to be clear, Liam McGeary has one of the, it's certainly one of the most active, certainly one of the better guards at 205, and just has one that makes use of his body type in the most incredible ways. So like, if first of all, he's really good that even if you get the pass, he he doesn't give it to you for very long if he can avoid it. Um, so if you are on top of him and you pass, and then you create space, just a little bit of space, you just you just move, pull. Like when you're in side control, where do you want to be? You want to have this arm, if they're laying this way in front of me, heads here and legs are here, I want to have this hand in front of their face. I want to have this, giving them tremendous shoulder pressure. I want to have them looking the other way. And this hand depends on what you want to do. Some guys like to have it on, um, you know, catching the other arm, making sure the opposite side elbow doesn't hit the ground because if that elbow hits the ground, they can move themselves off of it. A lot of different things that they want, but um, uh, what McGeary is good at, what, what you want to have is your same side hip touching their same side hip. That's one thing you want to do, and it takes a while to learn how to distribute your weight like that, but if you can do it, you just keep weight on, on all the different body parts. So cross face, hip, and, and that, that, that keeps the guy locked. Um, the minute that hip would come off the hip for Newton, he was good at squeezing a knee inside, or... One of the things I mentioned before, I think it was Chris Collati's versus um, Ray Borg. He would go for a submission, Ray would pull out of it, and then pass immediately. Um, Newton was able to pass sometimes in a five-round fight, but I would also give credit for a guy the size of McGeary, squaring his hips up, finding a way to, even if he was getting passed, he would throw the leg over the top, then squeeze the knee in, and then come underneath for the uh, arm bar. He did it twice. Um, so really, really, really good use of his guard. When he was in front, constantly keeping a shin up there, constantly working to control the wrists. Um, Jimmy Smith had made a point that he was, when he locked up the various triangles, and he locked up many of them through the course of five rounds, he wouldn't quite commit to it, like either go to an arm or go to a, a head. Uh, I'm a little less, uh, I'm not saying Jimmy's wrong in any stretch of the imagination. I'm a little, that's a little less my concern because I think Newton was a little bit hard to um, control in that regard. Like it was just hard to stick to one thing because he was. Um, so active underneath that you weren't sure it was ever going to work. So I forgive him for that. I, I don't think that was, to me, any issue. Um, the only issue is he's developed a lot of attacks where if you get passed, again, he's able to swing just in the inside and then one foot over the top, he can go for an armbar even after he's been passed. Or he uses a hand to block a cross face and then he'll bring a leg up to trap it and then reverse you, which I understand you can do. But the point being, these are... He's mastered things from when he's already in a bad spot. You know, you've mastered things from when you're already in a position where all the submissions or many submissions are now open to your opponent or control positions or, or whatever. It'd be nice to see the takedown defense be more of a priority. And I also thought that his scrambling was really weak. Really weak at scrambling. And again, the body type doesn't lend himself to that, but you got to find a way. you got to just find a way. So it's cool that he has these unbelievable guard tricks once he's been passed, but... If you've developed that side of the game so much, 
it's probably because you're getting past too much and you're just trying to sort of find a way to attack from there. I'm not saying don't keep those things, but creating more barriers to passing, creating more barriers to um, getting taken down, finding ways to win or at least exit scrambles would be really important for Liam McGeary. But uh, Emmanuel Newton doing what Emmanuel Newton normally does, incredible submission defense, um, getting caught in triangles and then you know finding a way to get his head down on the same side that McGeary's foot was down inside the triangle to get out eventually did but one of the things that was really weird to me about his passing was he would break out of something where it would be an arm bar or a triangle and what you want to do when you pass is okay now that I've pulled out they've let go of the triangle they let go of the arm bar maybe my arm is still in a little bit of danger but they've let it go as a chance to reset you have to make them what's called smell their knee you have to drive their knee into their face not to like hurt them but that's what enable the pass to enable the pass if there is if their knee is away from their chest they can re-square their hips or block your shoulders or block your cross face they can do enough to wiggle underneath when you drive their own knee right on top of them and they're stuffing them down they can't move anymore they're stuck there's nothing they can do you can do an ed ruth cradle where you come around and you come around and then you hold it and then you stuff now i don't like i don't recommend leaving the arm in but you get the idea you can do that you have to drive it down. And he wasn't ever driving it down. So he would try to pass and really couldn't. So he would stay squared up or get right back into another submission. And that was a big problem for him. But uh, Liam McGeary really opened my eyes about the use of his guard in many respects. Um, great, uh, uh, accurate, well, more importantly, well-timed strikes from Newton. He would get Newton moving, and right as he was moving to where he wanted, he would get himself off center and crack Newton with a single shot. So he wasn't even throwing necessarily big combos, but the one shot was landing with pinpoint accuracy. I really like that. Newton kind of like switching strike or switching stances and then like throwing an overhand uh, as he switched and like crow hopped into it, um, which didn't do a whole lot for him. Had some decent body kicks, I thought. Uh, decent, um, good, good job at catching some of McGeary's kicks to set up the single leg. So I thought a great performance from both guys, to be perfectly honest. Just maybe, um, maybe the the submission work off the floor from McGeary was really too much for Newton to handle. And I also, again, I really feel like if you haven't seen the fight, I'm gonna I'm gonna link it up in the post. You, sh you should go watch it. Check out his guard work. Impressive at all phases. A little bit concerning that he's developed so much on the on the end of things where it's, you know, you, you, sh you almost shouldn't have that much expertise in that portion of the game. But if you do, um, it's certainly a nice ace in the hole, other things you can work on. But nevertheless, the guard work of Liam McGeary really surprised me. Very, very, very good guard work. Uh, and again, uh, the man of the match for this one, I will say is uh, Liam McGeary for sure. Because of all the winners, he he... He had the hardest job and did the most interesting things. So there's your man of the card, your fighter of the card, Liam McGeary. All right, uh, the other event that we had that we have to get to, of course, uh, Invicta FC 11, Cyborg versus Tweet. This took place at the Shrine Expo Hall in Los Angeles, California, the night, of course, before UFC 184. I won't at all mention the under the prelim card, except I'm a little surprised that J.J. Aldrich lost that that kind of shocked me a little bit um 
Irene Aldana defeated Colleen Schneider via rear naked choke at 105 of the first round. Irene Aldana is a bantamweight. Keep an eye on her. She has big power uh, on the same team as, we'll get to in a minute, Alexa Grasso. Um, I'm not sure if Schneider came in on late notice. I can't quite remember, but Aldana packs a big wallop and is really good about finishing off of, with a submission or on the ground if she can hurt you standing. Um, so let's see. We can not much to talk about there. Deanna Bennett defeated Norma uh, Rueda Center. Center was coming in on late notice. This was a little more competitive than I thought it was going to be. Um, Center doing enough to stuff some of the attacks of Bennett, uh, but Bennett just simply being a little bit more offensive and defining, again, where the fight took place and sort of uh, initiating most of the offensive exchanges. Uh, I don't really care about those two bouts that much, though. The ones I want to focus on, number one, Alexa Grasso defeating uh, Mizuki Inoue via unanimous decision, 30-26, 29-28, 29-28. The 30-26 is insane, because uh, she got dominated the last round, Gra Grasso did. This was a sensational fight. This might be the second or first best fight of the whole weekend. Really, really, really good. This was a strawweight fight. Grasso is a big star in the making. Has to be. And in a way, I feel like could be a bigger star at Adam weight, but she competes at 115, because I think there's more competition for her there. I mean, this this was just what high-level women's mixed martial arts is supposed to look like. Unbelievable talent. Um, Grasso is great for this weight class for a number of reasons. For example, one of the reasons I think that there's just not anyone to beat Ronda Rousey at Bantamweight, um, there's many, many things you could point to, but one of the things is that none of the girls can hurt her uh, or seem to be able to hit her and, and hurt her in, a way, in any kind of way. They don't move their opposition with any kind of their power punches, if they can land at all. Grasso hurts people. She'll bloody your nose. She'll swell your face up. She'll lump you up. She has actually decent punching power. If you lean into her, she has a great repertoire of, of lead and rear uppercuts. Um, great job at finishing with the outside leg kick on, on in a way, the entire fight. Had her really welted up on it. Uh, that was great, too. Was really good at at managing distance so perfectly. So she was just out of the range for uh, Inoue's left hook, but she was just in range to pump a jab and then uh, straight down the middle. That was great. Of course, finishing with a leg kick as well. Um, she was able to throw uppercuts underneath one of uh, Inoue's punches, the old Arlovsky uh, on Matyushenko bit, which I thought was great too. Uh, really, really diverse use of her boxing. And when one thing I really uh, admired about it was in her... Last Invicta fight, Grasso was kind of a little bit more counterfighting, a little bit more cautious. This time, the tempo was much higher. She was really going forward, which hurt Inoue because that affected Inoue the, in her last Invicta fight the exact same way. So she came out. Here's the problem. Inoue at distance is really good at blocking punches, at keeping a good shell, at parrying jabs, at not getting hit. But when she gets in, she doesn't get out fast enough. So she gets in, throws a strike, and then gets tagged every time. Um, so she's got to find a way to get in and get out a little more cleanly or, or jab at angles, double up on the jab, triple up on the jab as you're moving so that you're just not in the same spot because that was what was really hurting her. At distance, she's hard to hit, but once you get in, the lack of everything she's doing right at distance stops in close. So that was a problem. Uh, in a way, hitting uh, single leg takedowns to get Grasso to the floor, some in the second round and then totally in the third round. Interesting note, in the second round, she goes to the single leg and Grasso does the old Bouchesha bit. Where there, she was uh, in on, in a way, was in on Grasso's left leg. Le Le Grasso goes to her left hip, throws the right leg over the top like you're going to triangle. There's no arm trapped, not yet anyway. But what you see a lot of people do is they try and um, go for a Kimura there. Where they have just one leg kind of in front of you, maybe on your hip, 
that's fine. And you can see her reach for it, which in a way flares her elbow out, but then almost kind of plants it. And what that allows uh, uh, Grasso to do is to simply, the leg is already over the top, now all you need to do is bring the other leg underneath and clamp it down for a, a not quite an inverted triangle, but almost an inverted triangle. Uh, clever, clever use of that position. Um, faking basically what is a Kimura tree. You feel like you, you see him trying to open it up, but all she's trying to do is just create space here between the elbow and the hip. That's all she needs. She's not actually hunting that arm per se. She's hunting that space by pretending that she's hunting that arm. That was clever as hell. Um, but of course, anyway, was able to get out of it because it wasn't quite tight enough from that position. That position's hard to finish that triangle anyway. Usually have to finish with an arm bar from there. She couldn't quite do it. She also attempted a Kimura on the opposite side during that exchange. Um, so... So that was good. Third round, a little bit more of the same. Um, in a way, we were able to get the takedowns when she needed it. Uh, what else? Um, and was able to pass. Interesting note, she was able a little bit better on the pass, which I mentioned about McGeary and Newton. She would get out of a sub or some kind of attempt. She would get, like, I think a doubles under pass almost at one point, and she would drive the shoulder in and then cut around the corner. I really appreciated that from her. That was the kind of thing that we needed. So, um let me just type it something here real quick. So that was good. So there was a lot of better passing from Mount. Grasso was trying everything humanly possible. She was trying the, the bit where you step over their, the, one of their legs and you bring it in with an elbow escape. She was trying the bit where you get two hands on the hip and you lift and just try to put a knee in front. She was trying everything she possibly could. It wasn't working for her. Uh, in, uh, in a way, it was doing a great job at maintaining uh, top position and then... Um, and then uh, back mount as as uh, Grasso would turn. So, in a way, winning the last round, clearly losing the first two. Great fight. I think, in a way, has a bright future at Adam Wade if she wants to. She's just too small and gets too muscled around and gets hit too hard uh, for me at strawweight. Uh, and then, of course, in the main event, everyone knows, no surprise, uh, Cyborg Justino defeating Charmaine Tweet, 46 seconds of the first round. This one was over as soon as it started. I think a couple of overhand rights landed. Charmaine Tweet did the... Um, you know, was on skates and got finished. I think maybe she got dropped once and maybe dropped again. I can't even exactly remember, but it doesn't matter. There was, she had nothing for Cyborg, who looked pretty good, I thought, actually. Uh, all right, and again, fighter on that card has got to be Alexa Grasso. Um, just an unbelievable effort from her. So we don't have a whole lot of time left. Let's get to the big show of the week. I know last week we went in opposite order, but this one I'm not going to spend time on every single one of these fights. Masio Fulham defeated uh, Alex Torres. Rolo Torres from Colombia. My wife was just absolutely moved by uh, this fact. Uh, he, listen, these Latin American guys are just another level below, or, not, or maybe several levels below the UFC level. You have to just sort of accept it for what it is. I, and, you know, I'm not going to tell you you should find that high quality because it's not. But, um, you know, I just find the fact that it's just a personal thing. I'm not asking anyone else to follow along. The fact that Torres, a Colombian, made his debut in, in uh, UFC is sort of a big deal. But, other than that, um, neither of these guys are particularly ready for this level. Uh, Valmir L L Lazaro, I can't, again, forget about per Portuguese, defeated James Kraus. Great prelim fight on this one. I mentioned before, Kraus doing a pretty good job of that double where that turns into you shoot a double, but then you bring your leg around and then you um, trip them. But that only works if you're able to hold on to the hips. You have to sort of crash on top of them. It's actually one I like to use because I really have a hard time with like level changing and then changing direction on the on the. I, I can only really do blast doubles. Um, I don't like I don't like double leg takedowns that much. 
And that one's a good one for me because I can come down on someone and hold them there. And if you do it right, if you come down at the right time, you can pass right at the same time. But Valmir doing a good job recognizing that Kraus was just a bit, uh, not quite underneath him on those, was able to scramble out, uh, elbow posting, and get the hell out as he needed to. So good job by Valmir Lazaro on that. Um, uh, Kraus turned it on late as Lazaro kind of faded, doing a good job of mixing up his jabs. Uh, I thought cutting decent angles, but... Uh, Lazaro a little bit better at kicking range uh, than Kraus. Uh, okay, we move on to the prelim card uh, for Fox Sports 1. Derek Lewis defeated Ruan Potts via TKO at 318 of the second round. Potts has lost. Potts has been finished by Anthony Hamilton, Soa Palele, and now Derek Lewis, all by either TKO or KO. Uh, Potts almost had a leg lock for a while. Derek Lewis just sort of scrambling out in a fit of rage. Nothing particularly technical about it, but he's so big and so strong that um, the damage he was able to put on Potts was just too much. I think Derek Lewis, uh, if I recall, uh, on the ground eventually passed to Mount and was just banging on Potts with you know horrendous punches. Potts, by the way, saying in between the first and second round he didn't want to go back out for the second round, and the corner sent him anyway. So there you go. Take of that what you will. Uh, but Derek Lewis, you know, nothing a whole lot to say except the guy's got just scary power, but that in and of itself isn't necessarily all that remarkable. Uh, all right, so then we move on to Tim Means defeating Diego Lima at 217 of the first round. This was awesome. Tim Means moving up to welterweight, and it was so perfect. He used, as Diego was kind of close to the fence, a push kick to push him against the fence, which kind of stopped him at range. And at the most perfect timing, at the most perfect range, Tim Means cracks him with a right hand, followed up with a left to the body or another left uppercut, some of the left kind of punch. But it was like, it was like, hit him with the front kick, he hits the fence, and boom! It was so perfectly located, so perfectly timed. Great use of the front kick, great, just great body awareness, great cage awareness of knowing what your range is and what combinations work, having the presence of mind to throw it. Tim Means is a devastating finisher, and from there, you know, he followed up with a series of strikes as Lima just tried to hang on for consciousness. Um, Tim Means is a beast, but it all got started off of that front kick as he was against the fence, putting him right in the range he needed to be, and then immediately striking while the iron was hot. Tim Means, a fantastic showing by him against Diego Lima. Really liked it, but he looked how he looked at welterweight. I know it was a short fight, but he just seemed to have a lot of I don't know pep in his step. There was it was it was awesome to see. So really happy that Tim Means is back. Um, not much to say about Roman Salazar and Kid Yamamoto. A thousand eye pokes either way. Yamamoto just looks totally ineffectual at this level. He's 37 years old, still throwing overhand rights. I mean, he had a couple of decent inside lefts as well, um, but and and isn't slow, but isn't explosive. Doesn't isn't that you know feared power puncher as before. Hasn't changed his game at all. He's still sort of relying on old tools. Uh, and they didn't even finish. He got stopped at 237 of the second round because Salazar couldn't continue from an eye poke. Terrible fight. Uh, Juan Carnero defeated Mark Munoz via technical submission at 140 of the first round. This one's not too complicated. Munoz does a th terrible shot. Can't get it. Carnero looks like he's locked up to sit for a guillotine or maybe a darce, the same kind of one he launched on uh, John Fitch. Munoz wisely reads it, goes down, but as he goes down, he realizes that Carnero has abandoned it, so he tries to get over back to a hip and, and to a foot so he can step and get away, right? Because if that's what you need, you need this. you got to be in your hip. If you're flat on your back, is the worst place you can be. you got to be getting at angles. So he tries to do that but can't. One, because Carnero at first has a cross face, which he uses to then grab the uh, behind the head, 
uh, as a control position. But on the other side, much more importantly, Carnero is under the legs of Munoz and then bringing his legs underneath so that Munoz can't can't stand up if you're, someone's holding your legs down on the side you're pushing. It just won't work. There's nothing to stand on. Um, oop, there's the 30 minutes. All right, so we got to wrap this up. Uh, anyway, finally, uh, Munoz is able to uh, sort of shrimp backwards and then get to a base, but Carnero already had the cross face. Keeps it, jumps the other leg around and to take the back as Munoz bases up his hands and feet to create space, create a pocket between his elbow and his thigh. Hook goes in. Uh, not Carnero not only... He, Carnero pulled what's called, I like the BJ Penn special. Tears him off of his base as he throws on the choke, which is brutal, and which you may miss in this one, which I thought is really, really important. He wasn't allowing Munoz to to crab himself into a ball. He actually stretched him out, which is very painful. Very painful. And as you stretch them out, you create a little bit more space. You don't let them you don't let them tuck inside. So he he took the back expertly as Munoz stood up for a base, then snatched him off of his base to launch the choke, then stretched him out like an accordion to make the choke work better. Great, great stuff from Juan Carnero. Moving to the main car, Tony Ferguson defeating Gleason Tebow uh, at 2.37 of the first round via rear naked choke. I mean, just a first-rate performance from Tony Ferguson, who has, despite looking like a wiry kid, big power. Uh, I'm over the limit, so we're just going to hustle here a little bit. Gleason Tebow, the one takeaway for me is that he's 31, but I believe he turned pro when he was like 16. Guys, you only have 10 or 15 years to do this. And so these guys who start early, they kind of finish a little bit early. He just looked, I know he fought five weeks ago, and maybe that's the reason. Maybe he'll come back out and have a better fight. But he just looked um, not all there. He just didn't have the same pep in his step. He usually used to be kind of physically explosive and have a, and a strength advantage. He didn't have that at all. Uh, Ferguson takes a little too many risks for my taste, uh, but the more he dials that back a little bit and focuses on the things where he's technically proficient, I just find he's a much more lethal fighter. He likes to launch darts chokes, and he likes to do sort of you know high-flying things and, and get his way out of trouble. If he would just dial that back a little bit, I feel like he can go even further than he already is. Um, Alan Juban defeated Richard Walsh via KO against the cage. It was a 219 of the first. This one's pretty simple. As he was turning Walsh, he cracked him with an elbow on the same side as he was being turned. So there was he was being turned in a direction. He was holding out his arm in the opposite direction to um, I'm trying to think here to prevent Juban from turning into him. So what Juban did was just threw the elbow over that top because it was totally exposed with his hand uh, extended in the course of the turn. When you're off balancing someone, hands go up to brace, to block, um, and that's what he did. In the process of the turn, bang, launched into it and, and, and finished him off from there. Great job by Alan Juban. Uh, Jake Ellenberger defeated Josh Koscheck via north-south choke 420 of the second round. This was weird, right? Here's my takeaway on Josh Koscheck. I thought that uh, first round he had a good blast double that he landed on Ellenberger, which was great. Um, also, he's 37 years old as well. Here was the problem, though. It reminded me of wa of watching fights in 2008 and 2009. Like, everyone always talks about, oh, well, fighters today are better than they ever were. And that's true. They are better than they ever were. But our expectations have risen, too. And what was interesting to me was that the initial stage of, like, oh, everyone's good at everything now was that everyone was good at pieces of everything now. And that's true now, but it's less true. And here's what I mean. So Koshchuk has a big overhand right. He's got a blast double. Um, if you can't get the blast double in the middle of the cage, you'll go against the fence and do the typical fence drag thing where he tries to you know, go for a double. But if you stop that, there's nothing else 
that he knows or can do. He has one gear. And that was fine in 2008, 2009, where you're probably going to land a big punch. And if you can't land a big punch, at least you're much younger and much more explosive, and that double leg takedown is there for you. Guys weren't as good back then as defending takedowns along the cage. He had a sizable wrestling advantage against most guys in UFC, at least early on in his, in his welterweight run. And so you saw a lot of that. Not the case anymore. Once that series of takedown attempts were blocked, and once the overhand right had no more home, he couldn't adjust into a second or third phase. Guys today can adjust. You take away one part of their game, they'll bring out another one, even in the same realm. So if you take away their striking, um, they'll have grappling. If you take away some portion of their grappling, they might have yet another layer to that grappling that's still potent that they can use in a fight. I just didn't feel like Koscheck had any ability to adjust. Anyway, Koscheck goes for a takedown, ends up in a power guillotine. Guillotine is, you know, comes under, grab the hand. This one's just a bicep grip, so it's like a rear naked choke on top. Koscheck tries to spin out, goes to his back. Uh, and it gets converted to a north-south choke. You saw him foaming. There you go. Holly Holm defeated Raquel Pennington via split decision, 30-27, 29-28, and then 28-29. You know what? Everyone's, everyone's going to say what they want to say. I actually thought Holly Holm looked good in this one, which is to say what I thought she would look like. Raquel Pennington's the best fighter she ever fought. The If you follow the live chat, you know I've been saying that I Holly Holm, go get your money. Go use your, your, your fame and popularity to get the biggest, fattest check you can get. But fans should understand this whole bit about Holly Holm, you know, what could she do to Ronda Rousey, was totally premature. And if you follow the live chat, you know I've been saying this since forever, 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 forever. And we'll get to this in just a minute with the Cats and Ghana fight. I know I'm behind. Um, Holly Holm is great. I thought she threw a nice series of diverse strikes. She was launching into Superman punches. Uh, she would use the front leg sidekick to keep distance. She was throwing, again, also the old Arlovsky, Matyushenko bit, dodging the, the, the straight punch, coming underneath for the uppercut. She was landing that. She had a good double jab, getting off at angles. She's great. She can't really, or at least she didn't seem to in this case, particularly hurt Pennington with her punches. She was strong in the clinch. Uh, it was a good experience for her. But there's nothing there that you can point to and be like, wow, this lady's going to give Rousey a ton of trouble. I mean, anything's possible. She might go in there and have some luck. But there's not a ton of evidence to point to to be like, this is kryptonite for someone of this magnitude and these abilities. But I thought it was a performance that was decent, all things considered, in, in the course of her career. If you understand who she actually is, this was a good good showing from her. Uh, nothing amazing, but... Um, I don't know that she's really capable of amazing just yet in mixed martial arts. Maybe she will be down the road. Uh, all right, so then we get to the main event. 14 seconds, we all probably saw Ronda Rousey defeating Kat Zingano by armbar. Um, check out the Gracie breakdown. They also do a great job of, of talking about it. Let me just say real quickly, I have uh, Look, no one, and I mentioned this on 120 Sports, no one is going to fly me out to go do cornering. No one is asking me for fight strategy. If you want to dismiss anything I'm saying here, I'm sure many of you already have or will. It seems to me, however, that the game plan that Kazingano had in mind, whatever that game plan was, was terrible. Terrible. I don't understand it at all. What was the logic? It is so low percentage. Everyone was like, what if she'd gone out and knocked her out? Yeah, of course. We'd all been like, oh my God, that's amazing. But you're talking about what if I had won the lotto by just you know buying one ticket? Um, the, the, your chances are so low when you do that. Yes, it'd be great if you won, you're, but you're not going to win. That's not what's going to I mean, you gave, you have to give yourself a chance to win. You have to. And the only way to beat Ronda Rousey is, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, it is science. It is, it is, it is having a world-class team. It is being a world-class athlete. It is having the requisite skills. But more than that, it is having game planning that in theory works out in practice. In other words, you have to first have just the right idea. 
Secondly, you have to expertly carry it out. It's, it's, it's many things that have to go right for you. And if you think now, the women of Bantamweight, please hear me. If you think that roughhousing with Rousey is the way to win, you are in for a desperately unfortunate surprise. It's not. You want to beat her, it has to be calculated, it has to be coordinated, it has to be scientific, and it has to be utterly disciplined. Anything short of that and you are going to get torched. It's That's just the way of the world. That's just what she does. Running in there and fly, throwing a flying knee was one problem. Then you're initiating a head and collar tie, or at least you enabled her to do it as you initiated the clinch, uh, and trying to throw Rousey. All bad news for you. All bad news for you. She's she's not sweaty. Um, she was able to Granby roll slash cartwheel to get on top. Um, and as you made the instinct in Katzengano's case to reach up for the head, which the Gracie's note is not wrong. I mean, think about it. If someone you're trying to throw someone with an arm throw, the arm is draped over here, what are you going to do? You're going to go like this, right? It's just almost the same kind of motion. One hand is up here, but one hand is controlling the arm. And you're gonna sort of just throw them off to the side. That can work when they only have that one side hook in. Nothing here's preventing. Nothing there's anchoring them in, and that can work. But it seems to me this is where you should have had a judoka the whole time who you were preparing with. Or you should. I mean, there's so many people at all levels of blue, purple, brown, black who are armbar hunters in MMA who do all the kinds of things Rossi's doing. We got one guy in our gym who's an armbar hunter. They're all like that. To me, I would much, much rather take my chances fending off a Ronda Rousey rear naked choke than a Ronda Rousey armbar. It may turn out that her rear naked choke sucks, right? It may turn out that she has no real guillotine to speak of. Maybe she doesn't need it because her armbars are so dynamic. But to me, that's really what this hinges on. You go out there and you give, you have to give yourself a chance to win. And it seems to me the kind of person that's going to do that, maybe there's many ways to beat Rousey. Maybe you can just beat her at her own game if you have those kinds of skills in the clinch or in the transition game and in, in, in on the ground. Uh, but if you don't, you need to pump a jab in her face. You need to be able to clinch break immediately, and you need to be able to hurt her. You have to physically, want you physically swell up her face, bloody her nose, close an eye, slowly discipline game hand. If there, there's no such thing as a women's uh, MMA Jose Aldo. But if there were, that's the kind of person I would favor to win, who could crack you and get out of the way immediately, who can clinch break immediately, who can defend takedowns with not just get your, not just stop the takedown, but then create separation immediately. That's the person I feel like is going to have the most success. Is a person where Ronda can't clinch, and on the ground they can win scrambles, and they don't. I mean, it's just, it's just. I, I, I am certain that Kazangano is feeling horrible. It doesn't matter what I say. She doesn't owe me anything. She doesn't owe the media anything. I frankly feel like she doesn't even owe the fans anything. But if you're going to go do that, you have to give yourself a chance to win. And and just the, I mean, yes, the glory would have been great. If you landed a flying knee, but the chances of that happening were absolutely infinitesimally small. That was not the way to go about it. So, Ronda Rousey looks good, but I really feel like everyone's like, oh my god, let's talk about Ronda Rousey's greatness. Yes, she's so far out in front of her contemporaries, but to me, the bigger issue is um, we haven't even really seen her greatness yet, as far as I'm concerned. You just haven't even seen it. You haven't even seen someone push her in a way that makes her reveal her greatness. Part of Fedor and Anderson Silva's greatness came in two tough fights. The Fujita fight and the Travis Luter fight where they had to show you extra things that they had. Or the first Chael Sonnen fight. Things like that. Not just demonstrations of grit but a presence of mind to launch applications of techniques after being physically bruised. Someone needs to hurt Ronda Rousey first. Once that's been established and they can keep her at range at least long enough to make her 
change the dynamic of her entries to to cut off certain portions of her game because one eye is swollen. Things okay, like and that. So let's quickly talk about what's next. We have, uh, let's see, Bellator 135, Warren versus Galvan. That's going to be on March 27th. That'll air on Spike TV, of course. I believe that's a Friday. Uh, UFC upcoming this month. This won't be this next week, obviously, but coming this month. I believe we have UFC 185. That will be March 14th. So that's not this Saturday, but the, or the coming Saturday, but the one following. Uh, and, of course, uh, Anthony Pettis, Dos Anjos is on that one. Uh, Sparza, Jacek is on that one. Hendricks and Brown, Nelson and Overeem. Carriasa uh, versus Cejudo. That'll be interesting to watch as well. Uh, any other fights? Um... Of note on that one, yes, uh, the return. Oh, uh, Larissa Pacheco versus uh, Jermaine Durandami, uh, which should be an awesome, awesome fight. Sergio Pettis is on that as well. By the way, on the Bellator card, uh, let's see. Francis Carmont will make his Bellator debut. Mike Richmond versus Eduardo Dantas and Ryan Couture versus Dakota Cochran. By the way, also Elsie Davis versus Hideo Tokoro. Uh, that's an interesting fight uh, too. And then, last but certainly not least, this. Uh, there'll also be, let's see, World Series of Fighting 19, Justin Gaethje versus Baboon, Luis Palomino, um, Honey Marks will make, I believe, his World Series of Fighting debut, or maybe his second one, Ed West uh, out of Bellator is going to be on there, Clifford Starks, Jay Hune, a lot of different ones on that one as well, and then RFA 24 will be Friday, uh, that will be Benjamin Smith versus Andalucio Romero, Jeff Curran will be back in RFA as well, uh, and so some other fights to check on that card too. So, Follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. Email me luke.thomas at sbnation.com. And of course, on Facebook.com slash Luke T Sports. Guys, I'm out of time. See you next week. Enjoy the fights.